This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from John to chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 and verses 19 through 23. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. When Leah and I were in seminary, we didn't have a lot of money. And what I mean by not a lot of money, I mean, frequently, we were not sure how we would pay the bills, how there would be enough money left over at the end of the month. So we would pray and we'd ask God to do all sorts of things. And, you know, we'd hear stories. We'd heard stories like you walk out and maybe there's a, an envelope of money underneath your doormat. Right? So we prayed for that. Or maybe we'd get, a, we'd get money in the mail, you know, and so I'm working part time and she's working full time. But that was enough for a while. But the problem is, is that she was a designer at an architect firm, which in and of itself was wonderful. However, 2008 happened and the market collapsed and over half of their firm, which was voted years and years as one of the best places in St. Louis to work, laid off half of their, their employees. Leah was one of those. So here we are, not knowing already how we were going to pay the bills. And now, yikes, how are we going to pay the bills? So one day we get mail. And you know, you get this official looking mail from, you know, we did keep the internet, which was great because how do you live without the internet? I mean, you can't live without the internet. So we had the internet, and AT&T sent us this envelope, and it looked really official, and Leah opened it up for some reason and read it. And what it said was, if you fill out this survey and send it back in, you'll, we'll give you $100 for doing this. So I'm skeptical, right? It looked really official, and, and of course, scams are even more prevalent now with really official-looking letters or emails or whatever. But for us, it was as though we got a letter from a very prestigious-looking law firm with really high quality paper that said someone had died and left us an inheritance. If it's a lot of money, even if you think it was a scam, you'd at least look into it. I know you would. And we did. $100. The cost was too great not to look into this. So we didn't have to give any more information. All we had to do, check some boxes, put it in an envelope, send it in. And they were supposed to give us $100. So we did it thinking, eh, nothing's going to happen. But guess what happened? They took all her money. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is what happened. We got a $100 check from AT&T. 
cashed it, and it worked. <laughs> it's better than the story of the envelope of money underneath the, the doormat, I think. It's certainly more fun to tell. God answered our prayers through corporate America. <laughs> not, not through good Christian brothers and sisters. I love that story. Be convicted. Just kidding. You see, what happens is that when the cost is too great, even if you're skeptical, you look into it. You do. Because you realize there's a cost either way. And the resurrection is something like that. You see, the resurrection doesn't fit in anyone's worldview. It didn't fit in the Jewish worldview. Did they believe in the resurrection? Yes. But not in the middle of history. The resurrection was supposed to happen at the end of time. And the Greeks, they hated the body, right? The resurrection was not good news. But to be released into some non-corporeal being with the being in the sky, that was more like Greek philosophy. And it doesn't fit in our worldview. We can't look at the resurrection and say, people used to believe in that kind of stuff, but we don't anymore because we're scientific. They, didn't, they knew just like we did, people don't raise from the dead. But you see, for all of us, the resurrection is so central that the cost is too great not to look into it. The cost is too great, even if you're skeptical and you're not a believer and you're not sure what you think about the resurrection. If it is, in fact, true, the cost is too great not to look into it. But for us believers who live our lives celebrating the resurrection one day a year, basically, and we don't understand the power that the resurrection has for us every single day after that, I would tell you this, the cost is too great not for you to look into the impact of the resurrection on your daily life. So all of us, the cost is too great not to lean deeper into the physical resurrection of Jesus. You see, the Bible is clear that resurrection does not fit our worldview. What has to happen is resurrection has to transform our worldview. If, and it did, the fact that Jesus physically rose from the dead in history, if that happened, which the Bible claims that it did, then we must see everything now through resurrection lenses. All of us, everyone, everywhere. And so let's look at this passage together John chapter 20, I want to walk through it, and what I want us to see, sorry, I'm looking for a piece of paper, here we go, what I want us to see uh, is the shock of what happened on Easter morning, so let's walk through this before we get to the one question that we're asking today, really we're asking two questions, but it's mainly one. Verse one, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, all right, so she comes, it's still dark. And she just gets close enough to see that the stone had been rolled away. And then after that, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Why would she say that? She didn't go up and see that his body was missing, but she saw the stone rolled away. The reason is, is because to rob a grave was pretty common in this day and age. So it made sense that if she saw the stone rolled away, that in fact someone had taken the body. And the reason that they would take a body is because all of the uh, spices and oils and other things that a person was buried with in order to mask the smell of the decomposing body, 
they were very valuable. So grave robbers at least could get those things. And if the person was richer and had more resources, they may actually find other things of value in the tomb as well. So it was pretty common. So when she walks up, she just thinks that someone came in, stole the body, dumped it somewhere, and took all the spices to go sell them somewhere. So Peter and the other disciple is most likely John, the writer of this gospel. They they go toward the tomb, and apparently John is fast and quick, so he beats Peter, who's slower, but he is more apprehensive, so he stops and looks in. And the Bible says, this passage says he sees, which is important, we'll come back to that. And then Peter comes in, and as we would understand Peter to be through reading the Gospels, he just bowls right past John, pushes him out of the way, goes into the tomb, he probably would have had to get down like this, and he looks in there, and it describes in more what he sees. What he sees is the, the burial cloths, and if you read it slowly, it seems like the text is actually trying to communicate. It's not that they had been ripped in all sorts of different ways, but in fact, they almost were in the similar shape as though the body were in there, but the body just wasn't there. But not only that, something else is strange. There's a separate cloth that covers the face. That had been folded up and put somewhere else, right? Grave robbers wouldn't do this. Grave robbers would not take the time to fold up the cloth and put it over there. But furthermore, they wouldn't take the body that had no value and leave all the things they would have came to rob, right? They would have come to take the spices, but they're there. So this word for see for both disciples is not blepo, which is the common Greek word for seeing with the eyes. Like I see all of you, I would blepo. But it's the word where we get theorized from, thereo. So they see how. They see in a way where they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out what happened, to put it all together. So is Mary right? Doesn't seem like she's right. Why would they take the body? Plus they didn't take the body because the cloth's still here and it's not really ripped. And then this is over here. So they're trying to put it together. And it says that John believed, but we're not exactly sure what that means. So they go back still trying to do the thereo, still trying to see in a way where it makes sense. But they just quite can't, can't quite get there. Until later that evening, Verse 19, on the day, the first day of the week, that same night, the doors being locked, where the disciples were in fear of the Jews. Obviously, they're Jews. They're not afraid of Jews in general. They're afraid of the leaders who killed Jesus. And it stands to reason now that they would try to come kill them to make sure this Jesus movement was snuffed out. So they're afraid. But then Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. This is more than saying, hey guys, what's up? But at first, you read this, this actually is a very common greeting in, the, in this world. Peace be with you. But set in this context, of course, it's massive. It has massive implications. So what I want to ask today, the question I want to ask is, what peace does the resurrected Jesus give his disciples? What peace does the resurrected Jesus give his disciples? And to answer this question, we need to recognize two things. The first thing is that the English word peace isn't robust enough to carry the biblical concept of peace. In Hebrew, that word peace would be shalom, which you may have heard of. And then it's translated into Greek as a similar word. But in English, peace tends to mean merely absence of conflict or maybe inner tranquility. Now, the biblical concept of peace includes those things, but it's much more than simply an absence of conflict or inner tranquility. The biblical picture 
of shalom is a robust picture of flourishing that could be described with the word wholeness. So shalom is in a principal way the way the Bible describes God's entire redemptive work. If you want to know what God's up to in the world through Jesus Christ and through all the works the Bible describes, you could simply sum it up in this. God is bringing wholeness. God is bringing peace. That's what redemption means. Redeemed and restored to what? To wholeness. Shalom looks like this in the Bible. When the Bible describes what God's reign looks like when it's fully on earth, it does so in ways that are almost stretched. It uses images that turn everything upside down, images that maybe make us thoreto like Peter did, make us try to understand, to see in a way that it's all put together what it's actually gonna be like when in fact true wholeness is experienced. So in prophetic language, which uh, is a certain genre, Isaiah says it this way, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Wow. It goes on, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. I think about my nursing child and think about that. Wow. Wow. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Whether that, as we like to say, literally will happen, probably not. Maybe. But we get the point. The point is, is that we can't even imagine what things will look like when wholeness comes. We can't even imagine the way the world and we will be transformed when God's peace fully comes. And somehow Jesus is saying that he's bringing that peace to us now, which we'll talk more about. It also means when peace comes that justice will be restored in all peoples, that the lame will walk, there'll be no more sickness, and that in God's restoration of the world, there will be full flourishing. So the first thing we need to recognize is that peace is very big. It's not simply the absence of conflict or some type of inner tranquility. But the second thing we need to recognize is the deep meaning of this greeting. You see, chapter 20 isn't the first time that Jesus has said this to his disciples. Peace be with you. Earlier in John, chapter 14, Jesus is trying, trying, trying to get his disciples to understand what he has to do. When you read the entire gospel of Mark, for example, the disciples are pictured in such a way where they never get it. They're always trying and they Jesus is patient, but they just can't quite get it. So then in John now, John 14, Jesus is trying to tell them, listen, I gotta go away, but that's good for you. I gotta go away, but I'm gonna bring you peace. And this is what he says in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I wanna, I wanna think about this phrase not as the world gives to you. How does the world give peace? Think about that. How does the world give peace? Well, by the way, Jesus is not the only place in this world that offers you peace. You can go anywhere and get the promise of peace. If you just fix this, if you just believe this, if you just buy this, if you just do this, if you just own this, 
If you just thought this, if you could just experience this, then you would have wholeness. If you just ate this, if you just did that, then you'll have wholeness. Peace, there's no shortage of promising of peace. But Jesus says that he gives in a way the world doesn't, and this is how. There may be many promises of peace, but there's only one place where peace is actually sure. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not just gonna tell you I give you peace. I'm actually going to give it to you. Uh, Some of my friends here who have been trained in any trauma experience, you've heard of the, the ABCs, right? Whenever you do triage on someone. One of the main, I'll get to that in a second. One of the main problems with offering peace, a false type of peace, a peace that is only part of the problem and part of the solution is that it, it ultimately won't heal because it doesn't take the wound seriously enough. You see, in the ABCs, A stands for airway, B stands for breathing, C stands for circulation, and now it's like A, B, C, D, E, F. I can't keep up with that, though. So, ABCs. A is airway. If you're doing triage on someone, if you skip to C, circulation is blood. Make sure they're getting blood everywhere and not bleeding all over the place. If you go straight to C and you say, wow, their color is good and their circulation is good, but their, but their airway is blocked, they're just gonna die any minute anyway. And their airway may not be blocked, that's good, but if they're not actually breathing, then again, it doesn't matter if their airway isn't blocked, it doesn't matter if their blood is flowing. So on the flip side, sometimes they're bleeding, but you don't start there. You make sure first their airway is clear. Then you move on, are they breathing? And then you move to circulation, and on and on and on. You see, over time, people realize that there's an order to these things. We have to understand the wound comprehensively. And if our goal is life, then we can't simply focus in on one of the elements that is a part of life. It needs to be more comprehensive. There was a problem, too, in Jeremiah's day, a prophet. Even their pastors were promising peace that they could not give. Jeremiah says this, They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see, in the New Testament, peace is revealed as the reconciliation of all things to God through the work of Jesus, all things. So where do you look for peace? Like when you wake up in the morning, where do you go to find peace? peace. I go to coffee (laughs) most of the time. I just think, I can't, I got to drink coffee first. Nothing goes better than the word of, than with the word of God than coffee. So if you don't drink coffee, you should consider starting. (laughs) But it might be your email, right? I'm, I'm amazed Uh, how easy it is for the first thing to hit some type of notification on your phone, right? Right away, why? Because that'll give me peace. I'll know what's going on. Somehow I can accomplish something and be worth something. What is your morning ritual? You have one. Even if you don't like it, you have one. And it's probably ordered in such a way where you think it'll give you life. Some of you, I know, just wish you had a morning ritual. (laughs) Your morning ritual is your kids waking you up and forcing you to feed them right away. But if we reflect, there are lots of things that we run to for peace. But in the New Testament, we see that all things are offered to us in Jesus Christ. 
So it's no wonder that peace in the Bible is experienced multidimensionally. So that means when a person experiences peace, we experience it physically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. And it actually flows from relationships being put right, first with God, then with self, then with others. So let's run through that briefly. First, Jesus gives peace that brings wholeness in our relationship to God. On the cross, Jesus reconciles us to God. Remember that peace is not simply the removal of conflict. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. The peace that Jesus gives you is not just that God's not mad at you anymore, which would be good news enough. But the fact that he restores wholeness to your relationship with God, that you can know him, that you can experience him, that you can flourish in him. The peace that Jesus brings is not to pay the penalty of sin so you can go live a reckless life because that wouldn't be peace. But peace is a calling now to walk with God and to experience him in all areas of your life. And that's the first place that Jesus brings peace to us through his death and resurrection. And what's amazing is he did this while we were yet enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. That means that Jesus on the cross experienced infinite pain so you and I could know endless peace. He traded places with us. He experienced infinite pain so you and I could experience a peace that will grow for eternity. We will never exhaust our communion and relationship with God, never. So to, try, to settle for any other peace is saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's to treat the, the bleeding victim when, they, when they're, not, they're not breathing. That peace with God flows into peace with self. You see, when we're given God's peace, it protects our hearts against anxiety, difficulties, and sorrows. It's possible, the Bible says, to have this kind of peace, and it's so deep that we, be, we can be content in any circumstance, even in great times of difficulty. Times of difficulty where you and I, when we imagine them, think there's no way we could make it through that. There's no way we could make it through that. But the peace of God, the Bible says, promises that we can and we will. One commentator notes that the peace of Christ is so closely related to joy that we might say that joy is how God's peace is lived out. So when we experience reconciliation in our relationship with God, the Bible says that it produces joy. That means joy is pretty powerful, which is why there's such an epidemic in our country of all types of addiction, all types of addiction. Because we're made to experience joy, but if we treat wholeness in a way that's not full-orbed, it will actually lead to death. Again, if the person's bleeding and not breathing, they die. But if the person's bleeding, sorry, if the person isn't bleeding, if they're not breathing, it doesn't matter if they're bleeding or not because they still die. So my point is, is that wholeness has to be holistic, which is why it's called wholeness. We cannot privilege peace with God above peace with self. Or, the Bible says, peace with others. 
Paul tells the Christians in Colossae that as the peace of Christ rules in their hearts, they'll have compassion towards one another and humility and meekness and patience. And they'll bear with each other and they'll encourage one another. See, the only way the Bible says for you to look at other people and not at some level think that you're more important to them, whether it's the color of your skin or the job you have or how much money you make or where you live, the Bible tells us that the only way we can look at other people and be truly for their flourishing and experience that with them is if we first have peace with God because then we're secure in him. And then we have peace with self where we don't have to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. And then that leads to compassion. That leads to humility with other people. You see, biblical peace is relational wholeness with God, with self, and with others in every area of our life. But at this point, it would be possible to mistake all of my resurrection talk today as just another way of saying that the point really of the resurrection is that Jesus offers us a new religious possibility. That Jesus offers us a new morality. That Jesus offers us simply a new religious way of salvation. But if that's what we understand me to be saying and the Bible to be saying, then we completely misunderstand resurrection. As one commentator said, the resurrection is not merely some absurd event in this old world. But it's the symbol and starting place of the new world. You see, this is what resurrection is. When Jesus woke up, there was a thin veil between where God dwells and where we dwell. And those actually belong together, the Bible says. That the future hope of all of us is that God will bring his home and he'll dwell on earth and those will be together again. But sin had ripped them apart. And so shalom, or peace, was to bring these two back together, heaven and earth. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there actually was a little split in that veil. And that little split let the future world come into the present. Nobody was expecting that. Nobody was expecting God's Messiah to be raised in the middle of history as the first fruits of this new world that is now coming. But that's exactly what happened. When that little slit happened in that veil and Jesus was raised from the dead, the new world came into the present world. And with it, it brought power. That's why the Apostle Paul says that the resurrection is so central to the Christian life. Listen to what he says. He says, my goal is that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. The way I see this gift of the resurrection happening in the middle of history is kind of like this. Imagine that someone gave you an infinitely valuable painting. Let's say, I don't know, pick your favorite artist or sculptor. Maybe it's a sculpture, maybe it's a painting, it's some work of physical art. And they're gonna gift it to you for absolutely free. But the only problem is, is that it doesn't fit in your house. So then you have two options. You can either reject the gift, although it sounds amazing and you're really sad about it, or you can remodel your house. You see, the resurrection is that. This gift of the new world breaking into our present world, 
This power doesn't fit in any of your house, houses. It doesn't fit in your life the way that it's naturally constructed. So to receive this gift, you have two options. You can reject the painting or the sculpture, whatever the work of art is, or you can be remodeled. Your life can be surrendered for God to do all the renovation in your heart that he needs to do, to build your house in such a way where it actually fits. You see, our problem is so often what we do is we try to take what God's done in the world and who God is and fit it into our life as it is now. And if it doesn't fit, yeah, well, it would have been great, but I guess it doesn't work in this area of my life. I guess the resurrection power doesn't count here because it doesn't fit the way I like to live my life. It doesn't fit the way that I like things, the way we do things, the way I do things, what I had envisioned for my life. You have two options. You can reject it or you can be remodeled. And the truth is there are areas in all of our lives where we are rejecting instead of allowing ourselves to be remodeled. Maybe for some of us, it's our resources. And I don't just mean money, but I do mean money. But I mean everything about you. I mean your calling, your gifts, your education, your network, your opportunities, your friends, your skills. Yes, your money, your house, everything you have. Maybe you view yourself as the owner of that and that it's really just for you to use however you like to carry out the plan that you have. But then all of a sudden, resurrection power, this message of resurrection comes into your life And you think, well, it doesn't really fit. I'm not a steward, I'm an owner. But the Bible says you're a steward. And so you can either change and be remodeled or you can reject it and live as the owner of your life. Which one are you doing? If you're a leader of people, maybe it's the way you lead people. Maybe you feel like you worked your whole life to get to this position so that no one would tell you what to do. So you could finally tell others what to do. But the resurrection power would tell us that our role in leadership is always to serve rather than to be served. And the more leadership opportunity that you're given wherever you are is to serve. It's not to serve. It is to serve, not to be a sovereign. There's only one sovereign, and that's King Jesus. So our lives in the area of leadership can either be renovated constantly, remodeled, or we reject him and lead how we want. And then because it's the Resurrection Sunday, I'll, use this, I'll, I'll end with this one in my examples. Resurrection power changes the way you should think and I should think about how we treat our physical body. The resurrection helps us to see that we should not mistreat our body, but steward it as a gift. You see, Christianity has somehow along, well, I have some ideas, but we inherit this vision, this view, that because we're gonna die Our bodies don't matter. Well, Jesus, by the way, says that if your bodies don't be redeemed, then you're not redeemed. So our bodies do matter. But the logic goes something like this. Well, since I'm gonna die, it really doesn't matter how I take care of my body. That's something like saying, well, because Jesus is gonna make me perfect, I don't have to worry about holiness right now. It does matter. And I know many of you are thinking, well, he's he's talking about diet and exercise. I'm not even talking about that, although that would apply. I'm talking about all the decisions we are gonna have to make increasingly as technology increases and we view our body as something outside of us, merely a shell that we get a shape with surgery and become the bionic person, right? 
in order to shape ourselves, right? I live how I want, then I take a pill because it'll make me better, but my body doesn't matter. Really, it's on the inside. That's called Gnosticism, okay? But on the other side, our bodies cannot become our God. Health and flourishing cannot become an end in itself. It's a gift to steward, to love and serve our neighbors, The good works that were prepared beforehand for you that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 happen embodied. And Jesus shows us like a tidal wave in that day and age and like a tidal wave in this day and age that even your body, though important, is not to be your God because you're not different than your body. If you make your body God, you're saying, I am God. I get to organize my life however I want. But the resurrection power that Jesus offers changes everything in our life. So whether it's the way you view your resources, whether it's the way you lead, whether it's the way you view your body and all of its implications, we all need to be renovated by the power of the resurrection, remodeled, not reject the power of the resurrection in any area of our life because it matters. And here's two instances where Paul says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Then Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What is God's immeasurable power towards you right now, Christian? It's this that according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, that that power lives in you. You have that power. It's been given to you. You can grow in holiness. I can grow in holiness. We can be remodeled. We can be renovated. Think about that. You don't have to keep living your life the way you're currently living it. But Jesus, and the power of resurrection, the same power that raised him from the dead, can come into your life and help you overcome that addiction, can change you. You don't have to stay the same. And that takes me to sort of the end mark of this sermon. It is a question, but it's much shorter. And that is, so... We see that the peace that Jesus gives his disciples is a wholeness, it's holistic, it's multidimensional. But also, let's ask this question and end. What purpose does the resurrected Jesus give his disciples? Well, let's read. 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, this is called John's Great Commission. Matthew's is very famous. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For behold, I am with you always. That's Matthew's Great Commission. But this is John's. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is actually the culmination of what John has been writing his entire gospel. And that is this Jesus who was sent by the Father, the one who was sent has now become the sender. And the one who was to receive the sent one is now to be sent. And so the great news for you is tomorrow morning, you don't have to wake up and figure out what your purpose is. 
I mean, you don't. You do not have to wake up and say, what is my purpose in life? Because this is it. And wherever God calls you tomorrow morning, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a service worker or a plumber or a stay-at-home mom or an attorney or a teacher, a nurse, even a pastor, anything else, we wake up tomorrow and we know exactly what our purpose is. And that is, as a follower of Jesus, wherever we are, we were sent there. To do what? To be peacemakers. Remember in our Flourish series, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be blessed. You see, when we receive God's peace, everywhere you go, you're sent to give God's peace. The fact that you've been reconciled to God, and now yourself, and then to others, you are sent to bring that same peace to others. But guess what? You don't have to say peace, peace when there is no peace. You actually have peace that's been given to you to give. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, honestly, not nearly as astonished as we should be that you burst into history and raised Jesus from the dead. But you have, and we're grateful. And we pray that this morning you would help us grow in our imagination of where all that peace matters. That you would help us realize even the areas that seem convenient to us not to think matter, they do. And every single one of us continually needs you to remodel us so that your message of Resurrection power can fit. We need transformed in order for it to fit. It doesn't fit in any pattern or system or worldview that we could have apart from you. So would you do that a little bit more in us today as we celebrate your love towards us in Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen.